You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 153 of Drinks with Tony and my guest, Mark Haskell-Smith. Check out his new book, Rude Talk in Athens. It's fantastic. Mark is one of my favorite people, and he's been on the show many times. He was actually the first guest on Drinks with Tony in 2002. Because before it was called Drinks with Tony, it was called the Cherry Bleeds Literary Web Scene. <laughs> Web Stream. <laughs> Since I ran a magazine called Cherry Bleeds from 2000 to 2010, this was before the word podcast was about and out. That was when we taped the show for Mark's first book, Moist. And now, nine books later, he's still cranking out great work. And now... Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians eleven, twenty-four, And here the Apostle Paul says, Of the Jews five times I have received forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Of Mark Haskell Smith, he's been stoned. He's been naked. And he's traveled the ships through the Greek islands, all for the end outcome of his last three nonfiction books. Essentially, Mark is the Apostle Paul of nonfiction. Hi, I'm Mark Haskell Smith, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Mark Haskell-Smith. He's the author of Rude Talk in Athens, Ancient Rivals, The Birth of Comedy, and A Writer's Journey Through Greece. Mark, how are you? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm, I really enjoyed the book. I actually finished. I was waiting to finish it last night just before I talked with you. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. It's called the arms. Yeah, it was, it's kind of like when you're having sex with someone and you're like, you want to do it at the same time. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, you, it's you hold out for each other. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then because there's no communication, you just eventually both of you just get tired. Like, when is this going to end? You know, <laughs> one long epilogue. Where, where was where was the climax? I don't even know if we had no, one. No, <laughs> didn't have it. It got cut. We just got tired and fell asleep. So usually, yeah, usually I don't think of any, I try not to think of anything before these, but at the same time, we're buds. And at the same time, you've been on drinks with Tony so many times as well. So it's, uh, it's almost harder to interview you because, um, cause I just want to sink into your eyes. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a tradition, you know, I, I put a book out and I do drinks with Tony. I mean, it's, it, it's almost like it wouldn't feel like I had a book out if I, we didn't do this. So, yeah, I guess that could make sense. And it would almost, and, and if I didn't do this, I would just stop the show because if you had a book out and we didn't talk, there would be no reason to continue it. Yeah, probably. It's kind it kind of goes that's, hand in hand. That's your call though. You know, really, I wouldn't be offended if you, if you passed me by once, you'd be like, <laughs> Oh, you know, it just wasn't for me. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, no. It, um, what I really liked is the question you opened at the end and a little, you know, spoiler alert, but the, I mean, the question is a valid one, which is why do we write and why does it matter? Yeah. Right. 
Yeah. It's interesting. Like, so, you know, just for your listeners, you know, the book is uh, a speculative biography of a fifth century BCE playwright whose work was all destroyed. And all we really know about him is he's, he's, he's mentioned in like five or six and maybe more of uh, the plays of Aristophanes um, as a rival to Aristophanes and someone with a, a predilection that at the time was very transgressive. And he's also mentioned, Aristotle mentions him like a hundred years later as uh, someone who was kind of, uh, you know, uh, not, I was kind of like commercial, you know, he would be like the, I, I mean, I think I made the reference to like Smokey and the Bandit or something, you know, he was more like, uh, he wasn't considered like a high art writer, but more like a popular street um, commercial artist he was jackass um, yeah he was jackass maybe yeah. Who, yeah who knows but um the the thing is like so here was a guy who at one point in his time in in ancient athens at the birth of comedy the birth of writing was a you know a player at some level and his work is all destroyed or was or was suppressed um you know we don't really know um so i was kind of grappling with these ideas like what does it mean to be you know because like when the christian church decides to cancel you it's 2000 you're canceled 2000 years ago and there is like you know maybe that someday we'll find some sort of carbonized scroll with one of his plays but it's highly unlikely and so it's sort of like so what does it mean to be a writer what does it mean to do that for your time like so many writers worry about legacy they worry about like what will happen to my work in 100 years you know what probably nothing it will be gone my friend so just speak to your time, speak to your place, you know, engage in the world around you in the moment. It's, I guess it's like a mindfulness practice in some ways, like be here now, like right here now. Don't worry about that other stuff. Don't worry about legacy. Don't worry about how future generations might perceive your work because it doesn't matter. But it does matter if you're on Twitter and, you, and you're going to be on S Saturday Night Live 10 years from now. <laughs> yeah i suppose but you know that, that that whole that that begs a whole other thing which i could go on a rant about but just briefly it's like people evolve right people yeah. change people grow and they learn you know when someone goes to jail for armed robbery we rehabilitate them we don't they don't get out of prison and say and we say oh you have to go back because you're always going to be an armed robber so someone may say something stupid or sexist or whatever 10 years ago doesn't mean they're the same person now and if they are you know what let's make an effort and educate them let's have some humanity people yes. are gonna make mistakes people are gonna say stupid stuff it's interesting because in co like conflict you it's like you know if you're in conflict with a person say it's a drunken night and you're walking down the street at 2 a.m it can escalate if both people are yelling at each other but one person can can de-escalate the situation really quick and walk away and it's not like any it's they can walk away from a situation that can get really bad when it means nothing right you know right no and you know you see that so much in like uh in well particularly like in literary twitter or, or academia it's like you know that old saying like the lower the stakes the more violent the struggle you know it's like it's like what are we what are we really arguing about someone wrote a book and maybe they portrayed you know, an Albanian 
a gay person in Albania and they're not gay and they're not Albanian. Do, do we now say they don't have the right to like explore that idea of who that character is? Some people would say, yes, you shouldn't do it. And I, I say, let's try, yeah. you know, it's our writers as a writers. Our job is to explore the human condition, which is not just like straight white heteronormative middle-class condition. Cause that frankly is a little boring. Um, it's to like get out in the world and see what's there and see who's there and try to develop some empathy. And if it, if it works great. And if it doesn't work well, you know, try again. Yeah. Go ahead and fail. And the, and the thing about, it's really interesting because um, I've seen it come up where I could tell people are just being disingenuous and they're writing about a native American tribe, but they're writing for the market and you can tell you're just like, Oh man. But then there's other people that it's all you really got to do is come at it from a place of honesty and really try and really try to get there. And then if in the end, it's just all craft. If, If it reads well and we can get into the character and, maybe understand a little more about others and ourselves and trying to, trying to, trying to react in a world of humanity, I guess. Yeah. And it's not to say language doesn't have power. Like, like uh, I once visited a plantation, uh, an old slave plantation in South Carolina and um, that had not been restored. It was basically just preserved. So it was, you know, very sort of rundown, but you could, you know, they didn't hide anything. And there's a, the guy who was giving the tour talked about the enslaved men and women who worked there. And I just thought, how smart is that? Because because you could say the slaves lived here, right? But I've never met a slave, but I've met men, women, and children. That And then we think of them being enslaved. It's just that one little phrase changes how we think about the history of that place and the people who were there right and i thought well that's really smart so language has power so we do have to use it um you know in a way that well i guess we have to use it in a way where we're just we're not uh casual about it like let's 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 embrace the power of language and use it to sort of say things that we want to say and benefit you know I don't know what we're trying to do or benefit, you know, I want to say benefit the world, make, you know, but it's not a fucking Coke commercial all we're doing here. We're, you know, it's, but you know what I'm trying to say? Help me I, out here. No, man. You know, I know. What you're tra- <laughs> I know what you're trying to say. And, and I think, and that's, and I think that's what's important is when we say something stupid, when we, when we, when we have an, when we say something and we're with other people, we talk about it, we go, and, you know, and I, I've been checked many times, Tony, that, that's a dumb thing to say. And I, and I'm like, wait, really? Why? And I want to know. And then I'm like, oh my God, you're right. That's a dumb thing to say. Yeah. And that actually, that, that's what, that's the conversations that we need to have. It can't be, we shove it in your face. Um, we, you know, that, you suck. Goodbye. <laughs> it's just like, right. no, you know, right. no, it's because uh, I think, I think in the end, we're all we're all trying to come from a place of, uh, you know, we're the heroes of our own journey and we're trying to come from a place where we are kind of the hero yet trying to fit in. So yeah. there's a lot of misguided people. I'm misguided. I'm, I'm constantly misguided. I feel like adjusting is great. I like to be adjusted. Yeah. And it's normal. And 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 part of becoming aware of microaggressions and things like that is part of growth. Right. It's like. It's a good thing, 
Yeah. Right. It's a good thing to have a friend point that out, say, you know, that makes me uncomfortable or, you know, you should really think about what you're saying. That stuff's important, but it's important to help people grow and not necessarily to cancel them and say, you should never do anything again. You know, and, and those, and those friends that have adjusted me or I've said, I've spoken up and stuff, I'm better friends with them. It brings yeah. us together. There, there's, it's, it's an intimacy because it's, and I, I think about this in uh, even romantic relationships, the lovely part of the intimacy is part of knowing each other's like imperfections and going, oh, okay. You know, and, and like, um, oh, I, I, I might not know what I'm talking about here, but go ahead and go ahead and adjust <laughs> me. No, but like, uh, like, you know, I think, uh, I think in romantic relationships, we're kind of constantly adjusting each other a little bit. And, um, and, you know, it's like, I don't know, in the, in the lowest case scenario, it's like, you got a booger in your nose, you know? You, you yeah. Know, I, I was going to go with bed farting, but, um, bed you know. farting. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, if you love someone, you overlook it. I mean, yeah. If you love someone, you smell it and take it in and go, did you have anchovies two days ago? <laughs> <laughs> my palate is not so good. I'm not so refined. <laughs> That's a refined a nose as you are, my friend. Is that blue cheese or ranch dressing? <laughs> <laughs> that you might be able to tell. Yeah, but uh, I was just I was just at a cafe, and um, you know, and these guys who talk on their cell phones and pick an answer, and I hate their guts when they talk loud. Part of me is happy to be disgusted by this again because we can actually go to cafes. Right. So I'm much happier to be disgusted in a cafe than in lockdown. But I'm at the cafe. The guy answers the phone. He's like, what? Who are you? What's your name? What's your name? And then and then he goes, hey, baby, are you hot? Tell me what your mouth looks like. What's your mouth look like, baby? I'm asking you if you're hot. So it's, I realized he was talking to a telemarketer, and that was his way to talk to her, which utterly just, one, yeah, it's okay to, you know, it's okay to fuck with telemarketers. But two, that was disgusting. I was I was really put off by that. Yeah, I, I, I like to, um, when they, when the telemarketers call, I like to say, oh, you're a robot. And they'll say, no, I'm not, I'm not a robot. My, my name is Chet. And like, oh yeah, Chet, this is, you're a really good robot. This is the AI is so impressive. Just like not believe they're human beings (laughs) until they get frustrated and hang up. Um, But, you know, I spend a lot of time home alone. So I need these minor amusements. I answer, I'll answer it. You know, I don't know that. I don't know any of the languages really, but I know how to talk gibberish. So mm. if I, if I don't know the number, I answer and I go, bonjour. They'll be like, uh, sometimes they'll be like, is this Tony? I'm like, oh, uh-huh. and then it turns out it's actually a call from someone that I know. Right. And I go, oh, I, you know, it's, and then, you know, and then, but a lot of the times they're like, uh, uh, how is the insurance on your home? And, you know, right, and, I, yeah. and then I'll be like, to the bang, ba, ba, da, ba, da, ba, ba, and hang up on them. And they'll be like, okay, I don't think we can ever talk to that guy. There's no communication. Yeah. No, they just, they just pass the number to the next telemarker. Right. You know, <laughs> you, 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 the dream is they go, wow, this guy's a nut. Just take him off the list, everybody. But that never happened. <laughs> Why does telemarketing still work? We're, we're in 2021. I don't know that it does. I've never bought anything from any of these people ever on yeah. principle. I don't, and I don't know anyone who has, Oh, yeah. my car insurance needs to be renewed. You know, I'll talk yeah. to the Subaru dealer. <laughs> right. 
I don't. Yeah, it, it's how are they making their money, or is it a big money laundering scheme? And there's these poor souls in the middle of it who are temp workers who have to sit there and try to shill crap for eight hours a day. Yeah, I don't know. My heart goes out to them. Yeah, they could be writing. They could be broker and writing. They could they could be in poverty and writing. Yeah, or painting or uh, <laughs> starting a band. You know, who knows? <clears throat> I don't know why people make those decisions. You know, they could like. A little bit of money or being broke, but sort of, you know, art, artistic satisfaction. So I, I've always chose the latter. Yeah. And well, and, and we, were, we were talking a little bit earlier. I mean, the first time I had you on Drinks with Tony was in 2002 on your first book, Moist. Yeah. The yeah. 20th anniversary is next year. Yeah. The Jubilee edition or whatever they're going to call it. Is that what it is? I don't know. I don't know that they're going to put one out. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the... um. What's interesting about it, though, is uh, I remember asking you at the time that, uh, and this is the first time I met you, it was like 19 years ago. Yeah, in and Oakland. I, and, yes. A really nice bar in Oakland. Yeah. Like, that place was classic. It was Jack London's um, shack, the Jack London house, right? Yeah, is that where we went? Like that. I think so. It was near some train tracks. We had to stop our conversation because of trains. Oh, the Amtrak went right by it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I asked, because you were a screenwriter, you know, you came in as a screenwriter, your first, your debut novel. And I was like, oh, so you get to quit your day job now? Because I had no clue how money worked in books. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you just saying, no, Tony, I can't quit my day job. <laughs> yeah. That, and uh, I still can't. I have a different day job now, but I still can't quit it. But that's okay. You well, it, feel, it seems like when I talk to you, your day job feeds you much more than what it than the than screenwriting. Is that true? Yeah, I like teaching. It's fun. You're working with uh, young writers who are trying to figure stuff out, and you're tr you're trying to help them. It's like sort of being a coach in a way mm -hmm. with grad because it's graduate students mostly, and they're mostly finishing novels. And um, yeah, it's really fun. I like it a lot. Um, because you're still engaged with ideas and words and these kind of things, the writing life. So it's not that uh, different than writing. It's, you know, it's being in the mix. It, I, yeah. I think it's, I think it's just, I, I, I really enjoy it. The teaching yeah. part of it. Cause it's yeah. just like, it's, I, you know, sometimes people, you know, there's students that drive me nuts and I'm like, do you know what the word conflict is? Have you, have you not listened for the last three quarters? <laughs> right. You've written five pages of the agreeables and we've had this conversation many times. Stop being agreeable. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I like those, those uh, books where everyone is just really nice to each other all the time. Oh, and everything's fine. Everything's great. It's like <laughs> I mean, you know, I wish that that would I wish that was the world, but uh, and it's great, but it is not uh, necessarily drama. It, you know, it's funny how much we need drama in our lives. I, so I've been reading this book called The Science of Storytelling, which is. Oh, yeah. Um, Will Storr's book. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And it kind of has me thinking a lot about how much um, I think there's a point where we don't have enough of our own drama in our lives. And that's why we gravitate toward TV and films and books because they bring higher conflict and maybe we need a little, you know, we need to be working in the fields with our hands and rate, you know, raising, uh, raising, uh, crops, pets, crops, peps, crops. Yeah. <laughs> raising Pepsi, big yeah. Pepsi trees in the forest. Mm. 
Yeah. He actually says something really, I think that's really great in that book. It's like the the way our brains work is they solve puzzles. They figure stuff out. And that, so if you can create a question in your writing or a puzzle that you want to figure out, then the reader's in because they want to figure it out too. And that's what is so engaging. It's not necessarily the conflict, although conflict is probably the most straightforward way to do that. But to me, that's like really key to like, you know, writing something that is, you know, when we call something a page turner, it's because we want to know what the answer is to the question or, or the next question. Right. You know, we are compelled. And I feel like you've really cornered that with your nonfiction because I, I read, because, you know, you're, 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 you're on target with every novel I've written. I want to know what, you know, I'm page turning and you're doing it in your nonfiction too. You, you bring this light element of, um, of it's almost like it sneaks up on you. It's just like, yeah. it, it, you, you, how, you, you tell me if I'm wrong. Cause you, <laughs> but, but you, you have this underlying thing where it's just like, Oh no, I need to know what happened next. Even if it's where you're going for drinks with Diana and what happens when someone puts a Beatles song on repeat at a cafe. Right. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's true with like my book on nudism or my book on cannabis too. It's like, okay, how do they make the greatest, pot in the world or or what are these nudists up to and so with this book it was like okay what happened to this guy here's a here's a here's a writer 2500 years ago all we know about him is he is in, accused of inventing cunnilingus it's like accused, like accused is a hilarious word yeah yeah god, he, god bless his soul oh i know i know <laughs> there should be statues to this person but there's not and i think the christians had a lot to do with it but um but yeah, so like immediately you're like, well, what's that? Why and how and who? And and so with nonfiction, it's really freeing in a way because you can just ask the reader the question like, hey, reader, let's find out. I'm going to look over here and talk or I'm going to talk to this person about it. And then you'd have a little interview and so I'm like, oh. And so for me, it's really, really fun. It's a lot of work, a lot of research. I mean, this book took like four years of kind of intense research, you know, multiple trips to Athens, which I know doesn't sound that what, bad. What and, a bummer. Poor, poor, that, that's, that's brutal. Well, it's not, I didn't, I didn't have an advance. I wasn't like sitting on a fat advance. True. Like, Oh, I'm flying first class to Athens. I'm like, you know, going like, well, I've got enough miles saved up and I can charge the Airbnb on my credit card. Right. And so, yep. uh, so it was really was this, labor of love in in a very uh real way like because when i told other people about what i was working on they were like <laughs> like are you sure i mean what <laughs> i mean they just didn't get it and and i and i don't blame them because in a way i didn't get it until i kind of finished it and then i was like oh that's what this is um it's a you know it's a very odd book but i I think it touches on some really interesting, important things. It, and, and there's this, and, and the books you listed in the, in the end about what, you know, how we're seeing, how we're seeing these years through stoic uh, philosophy and through oh, yeah. the, you know, the, um, there, there was the, the books you mentioned at the end are all on my bookshelf. <laughs> like, right, you know, right. <laughs> I'm just sitting there going, you know, is Mark making, does Mark know me? Is he in my head? But, um, yeah. but it's how to, how to live like a stoic. Right. 
right. Uh, how to be this like this story? They're like Aristotle's guide to right to girls or something. You know? To be a Roman emperor. Yeah. <laughs> it's, but um, but there's been a fascination of it. I think partly probably because uh, I, well, I I'm not sure. I think we're just we're still trying to figure out what we are as humans, and that could be you know we go back to the ancients for the answers, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know there's a lot that okay so we in the fifth century bce athens people decided to have like one person one vote i mean it was a patriarchy it was a misogynist culture it was a lot of really brutal horrible stuff they owned slaves and all this not a great place on the flip side the part that we like to think about more is that they started asking these kind of fundamental questions and so all the arts, literature, sciences, all what we call the liberal arts now, all came out of that culture at that time. Um, and also some sort of philosophies and two sort of dueling ones. One's the Epicurean one, which is about like, you know, basically enjoying life, having friends, um, you know, spending time in contemplation and nature, making art and doing these kind of things and Epicurus was actually really smart even before but many many thousand years before a microscope he believed that the world was made up of tiny particles of energy that came together to shape form you know what we would call atoms now but yeah. he was on to that like way in advance and then the other part were these stoics who were people who were like you know keep a stiff upper lip be you know true to the sort of this more sort of regimented idea of what a upright masculine person might be. And you can see why, the, you know, and Epicureanism turned out to sort of be early communism. Karl Marx was influenced by it when he was writing the communist manifesto, but now we're getting people like Jordan Peterson and all these sort of alt-right incel people who believe that sort of the stoicism, uh, this idea of what it means to be masculine in the world is, is somehow, you know, the way it should be. Like the, the patriarchy should boss the world around and men should do, uh, tell women what to do. Women should be, you know, cooking and cleaning and taking regular deposits of semen from the men and things like that. And, and to me that those books are getting traction in our culture is horrifying. <laughs> it's like, I hope that my book is the antidote to those people. <laughs> yeah. Wait, so an incel means involuntarily, involuntarily celibate, right? Yeah. Or perhaps right? they would say involuntarily celibate, but yes. <laughs> That's good. That was a good slip, Tony. I like that. Oh, <laughs> lots, there's lots of slips and then people go, that's genius. And I just nod my head and go, I have no idea what I just said. Uh, yeah. But is it, it, in the 80s, we just call them virgins. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why does everyone get cool names now? I don't know that it's a cool name. Yeah, it's, it's like. Incel I, sounds like it's from a, a, science, a science fiction though. Film. yeah it, it does and it's the ones that's the incels who who lose their shit and go hurt people that are you know problems so it is yeah and i you know because they feel entitled to like owed to it and i think stoicism is a lot of sort of ma masculine entitlement and that's why I, I reject it totally it's it kind of blows my mind because we do seek uh we do seek romantic partners who are um similar to ourselves 
you know, so if I weigh, if I weigh 450 and I got nothing going on, I look for someone who weighs 450 and has no nothing going on either. And we come and hang out with nothing going on and we eat Doritos all day. That sounds beautiful. I mean, that's, you know, but are these, are these incels trying to get like, uh, you know, Bay, Baywatch models or something and they're upset about it and shoot up a, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, I don't, don't I, I don't know. They seem to feel at least the few things I've read in some newspaper articles about people like this is that they seem to feel like that be, just because they're dude, they're owed sex from women. Oh, yeah. it's yeah. I wonder. And it, are these people younger? Like they're entitled. Yeah. Yeah. And like they're entitled to it. Yeah. Um, they just needed his, to be. They well, needed I was going to say historically there's prostitutes for that, you know, but. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like sometimes people just need to be beat up a little bit when in high school, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not too bad to take a beating. And then, and then I think, and then I think it kind of helps in the long run. You're like, Oh, wait, I am not the cool one here. And you kind of go, okay. And it, and it adjusts you. Yeah, I, 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 I suppose that be that could be. Uh, <laughs> I love how you're trying not know. to agree with me on bullying. Come on, I'm let's come like, together on this. <laughs> no, I just I'm not I'm not, not seeing it. I'm not seeing it. And uh, you know, I blame technology. I you do know. too. No, a lot because, I mean, even with um, where was it? you 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 that's you were talking about it in your book how someone would um. You know, how funny it would be to think in the fifth century BCE, someone would have like a clay scraping of uh, <laughs> of these plays talking about cunnilingus under their mattress so their parents couldn't find it. And that was what they that was how they, you know, aroused themselves when they were young. <laughs> right, right. And it's and it's kind of it's all just the same down the road. But all of a sudden, it's just like it, it's not a Sears catalog. It's so much in your face that it's it's almost like oh wait you know if it i and then you know this is talking about pornography but if if i just feel like there's too much if you're if you're young and it comes at you that fast and then i think there's probably tell me if i'm wrong please adjust no i thinking. i i i think that you know i mean and obviously this none of this has anything to do with my book um <laughs> don't you love drinks with tony <laughs> that's why we're here um um I think that if you live in a society that's super sexualized, like everything is sexualized and you're not getting any and you're not finding a way to get any, then you become frustrated. And at a certain point that turns to rage with some people. Right. Um, right. And then there's a lot of sexualization on social media because everyone's pretty and everyone's looking good and it's the perfect angle. But at the same time, we're not seeing the 24 hours a day of people's lives. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think that the, I think we get a really skewed um, perception of the world through our screens. Yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's, I'm basically stating the obvious with that. Yeah. No, I pretend I'm happy. I'm right. Like... <laughs> you did such a good job. Thank you. No, I, I remember. I don't, do you remember Live Journal? I think it was in the mid aughts. Um, and now was it part of myspace uh it was pre-myspace whoa yeah it it was pre-friendster it was called live journal and you had a and it was and you had maybe a hundred friends at most and um and and it was very blog emo here's what happened 
it was all kind of like real storytelling and only your friend people can see it. Later on, there was a social media app called Tribe that tried to mimic that. So like Tribe came in, Framster came in and everyone was trying to mix up what LiveJournal was doing. And then all of a sudden it's like short. This was pre-Twitter too. Was it text so or no, were you was, talking to the camera? It was, no, it, there was, well, there wasn't the bandwidth to talk to the camera yet. So it was, oh, right, uh, right. you were writing and, um, and it was cool. Cause it kind of, the way it did it, it really brought people together where I, what the, you know, the little thing I was in where I knew all these people, but it was, it was all based on music and film and books. And, right. um, and there was a little more long form and there was a little more like, Hey, you know, that's really dumb. And you're like, Oh, why? Cause it's, and it almost like it wasn't, it wasn't trying to show the world that you're saying someone's dumb. It was showing that person that, that was dumb at the time. Right. And There's now no, it's like, Oh, I, shaming. I need, right now I need to show the world that I'm, that I'm righteous. I don't know why I got on a live journal, but uh, how did we get there? Mark, help me out. Uh, just don't uh, worry about it. Screens, uh, screens <laughs> right. affecting people's perception. Right. And so, yes. Yeah, so in the live journal days, and I'm still friends with some of those people on Facebook and in real life, but, um, there was more of a, I'm going to tell you the whole story of what's going wrong or what's going good. And I think there was a little more, a little more three dimensions. Cause it was kind of a personal blog directed at your friends only. Right. And I actually think if you're sitting down and you're writing something, then you're, it, that's a process where you're filtering your thoughts and what you want, how you want to say it. And you're sort of, you know, structuring it in a, in a way. Whereas if you're just, you know, bl- blabbing on drinks with Tony, um, it's more free, freewheeling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, it can get you in trouble. I mean, I, I, I really hope you don't get canceled from this uh um why <laughs> i don't just <laughs> what did i say no, i'm being silly um yeah why why not even say that out loud it's yeah. on my mind now it's now we're jinxed now we're, we're doomed. <laughs> wait um you're working you work on this book for four years what is it to what is it to set the tone that you do the, your voice how how do you keep a through line on your voice because because you do give us you're, you're you're dropping a lot of facts and at the yeah. same time you're really kind of keeping a lighthearted jam about it which is kind of who you are in general i think yeah I, you know well one it's sort of it's how i look at the world um through a kind of what, what do they call them gimlet eyes you know is that what they say when you're i don't know i'm drunk all the time no that's not true. <laughs> um, i well you know the thing is it i am dropping a lot of facts and i'm dropping a lot of academic information so i want to make it entertaining which is something that academics don't have to do right and that's they're, why they're academic tr- reading sucks yeah well it, for the for the lay reader it's a very dry experience and you have in your book has um, pictures so it helps me no i'm kidding yeah yeah uh yeah i I like that i had a book with pictures finally after all these years pictures you got a picture book Um, i can find i can finally understand everything now (laughs) um no but you want it to be entertaining and like i mean i talk about this in the book too it's like so often comedy and comedic writing gets dismissed as being really easy are facile and something. And, and actually the fact of the matter is, is that 
it takes a lot of effort and skill to make something seem effortless, right? It's not, yeah. you know, so I, you know, you may breeze over the stuff, but I've spent, you know, months working on that to make it, to make it that way. That's the intent. So, um, yeah. So I work really hard to make it that way. So I, you know, oh, why, why pick up a book that's boring? And why put a book out there that's boring? I mean, it's, yeah, yeah. you know, we got to put out the books that we want to read. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. And I wanted to, I'm fascinated by the world. I'm fascinated by um, the ideas that come out of that world about, particularly as they relate to present day life. But um, yeah, you don't, I don't have to, you don't have to be a drag to discuss it. Right. You can have fun with it. So yeah. I don't know. Now, now I love this part of the story because your daughter's publisher actually is the one who picked up the book. Yeah. And, and how did surprise. you, how did you, how did you find out that you, cause you were in submission with your agent, right? This was right. So, so my agent went out with the book and she did not tell me she was submitting it to the unnamed press. She knows that I'm a big, I am a big fan of unnamed press. They put out great books. Um, yeah, I mean, they put out, they're really doing some amazing work. If you really look but back, I would, if you really look back, you birthed Unnamed Press. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no, I can't take credit for that. No, they did their own thing. But at, at the same uh, time, it's it's your daughter. So there's a. Yeah, yeah. It's my daughter and, and her, her business partner, Chris, and some other people. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so my agent didn't tell me she submitted it to them and she told them he doesn't know. But this we think you I think she said, I think you would be a good press for it. Here it is. So if you pass on it, he'll never know. So there's no you know, so she was trying to cover them and protect me. And she was actually very smart about it. And then, you know, they went out to a few other places. And then about a, a week later, she she sends me an email she, or she calls me and she goes, uh, this editor's interested, but she's got notes. Um, so I'm going to send you the notes and see what you think. And I, I read, you know, it was actually a lot of notes. I was like, Oh, that's a lot of work. And I was like, but these notes are really smart. These ideas are really good. Uh, this is, yeah, they get it, but, and they want to see even more. So I was like, okay, yeah, great. I'm, I'm, I'm in. And she goes, good. It's your daughter. And they've, <laughs> I've offered a preempt on it. And I was like, Oh, all right. And so for me, working with her, because she's brilliant, and um, I mean, I'm biased, but she is. You can ask one of her other authors. And, yeah, um, yeah. and she's brilliant, and she really elevated a lot of my ideas. She pushed me really hard to like, you know, well, because I might say, well, this is something that happened. She's like, well, what about it, you know, and get some more information. And so I ended up doing another six months worth of work on the book, which uh, made it better and and actually it was just really fun because in a way i was like watching her editing and having her publishing career and going oh you know i'll never get to work with her i was always thinking um, you know i'm not cool enough to be an unnamed press author uh -huh. um uh, and then so for it to happen was really really fun and it, and it turned out to be a great experience and i think that it shows in the book too yeah that's so cool that you connected to the notes and you didn't even know that it was uh came from your daughter yeah no you know i've worked with some like big time 
you know, New York editors like Morgan Entrican and Jameson Stoltz and stuff. And her notes are just as good as theirs. She's really good. So yeah. I, I recognize that um, she's a good editor. And, and I mean, I think this is common among writers is like, if you find an editor who gets what you want to do and then helps you and pushes you to do it, it's really great. It's all you could ever ask for. And I've in my career been very, very lucky that most of the editors I work with are, are just really smart people. Right. Cause you worked with Jameson on um, a couple of your books, right? I or did like six books with Jameson. Wow. And then I did blown with a, a editor named Karina Barsen, who was also at Grove and uh, she was great. And uh, yeah. And Jameson, I did naked at lunch with Jameson as well. So that's right. Um, yeah. And this was the first, this was the first nonfiction book that wasn't a take on a, on a title. Yeah. I, you know, you get stuck with the titles, you get stuck into kind of a groove, like a branded groove. And I was really like, uh, I, I, let's, let's try something else. So, cause like, cause all your fiction, all your novels, they're all one word titles. Yeah. Yeah. Which I always yeah. found great. I'm like, how, how do you get the right word? You know, it's like, how do you, how does that work? Even the first one moist. I'm just like, you gotta read that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, that that's the thing. It's like, so the first book was Moist and then Delicious. And then after that, you know, um, my editor at Gro Morgan at Grove was like, well, you need to keep doing one word titles. We're going to have a, it's going to be a thing. Trust me. And I was pretty resistant to it. But, um, you know, now that there's six of them, they look kind of good all together. So I'm like, yeah. oh, all right. <laughs> is now, is your will your next novel be a one word title, you think? Or are we breaking? Oh, yeah. Them? Yeah, yeah. Cool. It's memoir a novel that's right <laughs> how far are you, how far are you along on that about halfway i guess yeah it's gonna be it's gonna be short you know i'm i'm into uh I, I really like reading and writing shorter books nowadays it's like let's just get to the point here yeah why do you think why do you think that changed i don't know uh for me it's just uh more fun in a way and uh, maybe it's time constraints or something but you know um it's nice to read a book that's uh not like 600 pages long yeah you know i noticed when i was um you know trying to and i can't remember the author's names right now but i was kind of diving into like south american uh novels that were kind of you know coming up and being translated and a lot of them were less than 200 pages even some of the Scandinavian novels that I was, that were being translated. It's like they're hitting that 174 and it serves it. It serves the story. There's nowhere they needed to go. It's kind of a perfect fit almost. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously the story dictates how long the book is going to be. And, and if you have a, a book like, you know, like the Harry Potter books or any sort of like book where you're building an extensive world, a lot of sci-fi books, you need to have that much that many pages just because to make the world come alive. But if you're, you know, if you're writing a, a strange romance set in a laundromat, I don't know that you need 300 pages. <laughs> it just Are, depends, I guess. Yeah. I, I actually, I would be excited to see the 900 page uh, first person uh, laundromat story. That, that could be amazing. 
and 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 the um and the time of the uh the story is when the washer starts and when the dryer ends it's it's in one wash cycle one dryer i like it it's good yeah yeah and you could have like when it starts to spin you know it could then it could that could be the, like the the thing that gets you into the flashbacks right <laughs> right <laughs> Like the like on Wayne's World when they would go, you know, the spinning newspaper and those old, in old movies, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then the buzzer snaps you out of it, right? Oh, it's time to put it in the dryer. And maybe you right. have to hang some clothes, and maybe that uh, you have some sort of resonating sort of history with the clothes you're hanging, right? And um, then you, and you kind you can kind of just really sink into the present moment of waiting for things to dry, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what is, is it's a metaphor for life right there, waiting for things to dry. Yeah. Yeah. It, like, it, I mean, when was the final, uh, when was the final draft turned in of Rutak in Athens? Oh, uh, must've been like a year ago, about a year. So you, you hung it up and you're waiting for it to dry and it yeah. comes out tomorrow. It comes out tomorrow. So it's all dried. You can Ready take it off go. the clothesline. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the ink will smear. I think it's good. Yeah, good to go. What's your stress level like when you have a book coming out? Does it change over, over the years? Yeah. Yeah, so it's my, like my ninth book. And uh, it does change. I'm, it depends on the book. Like when I have a novel coming out, and I'm fairly confident. Like, ah, oh, this novel, novel's blah, blah, blah. But when it's the, like a book, like this is a really odd book. And so for me, it's like, oh, how are people going to, you know, how are they going to come to it? What are they going to make of it? You know, it's a really personal book. Um, so I'm a little more nervous about it. So, but I'm also excited I because I think people are going to dig it. And I think people are going to be like, oh, there's some stuff I've never knew about or thought of and it actually relates to the current moment. So I think that's important. I've only seen good reviews of it. I've only seen positivity so far. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, um, I'm very happy that it's, it's getting a lot of um, nice reception. Yeah. Do you so, know if you have a uh, New York times or LA times reviews coming up? Does, do they tell uh, you about any of that? Uh, I've never been reviewed in the New York times in nine books. Oh, wow. Ever. Their loss. Yeah, you know, it's not my local paper. I don't live there. <laughs> um, so I understand. Um, and there's a there's an interview with me that Tobias Carroll did in the LA Times. I think it's online today. And that's going to be in the Sunday paper, I believe. Cool. And um, there's a, uh, a review in Alta that came out today. That's cool. I read that. That was really good. Yeah, it's really. He totally got it and was really smart about it. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I mean, a lot of times with, with, with reviewers, you're like, well, it's just their one person's opinion and something, but when someone actually really gets it and engages with what you were trying to do, it's such a gratifying feeling. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm not the only one who thinks this way. So you're like, oh, oh phew, I'm not a nut. Yeah. Well, I might be, but at least there's another one out there. Yeah. How, how does Diana feel about being in the book so much? What, what, what's her thoughts on it? I think she's, she's by now, she's kind of used to it. She was in Naked at Lunch a lot. Right. You know? And uh, 
on the nude cruise and uh, she was in some ways the i think one one reviewer said she was the the unsung hero hero of the book and and i think that was true and so she's 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 here she's and she's actually good to have in the book because she has her own perspective and then i can bring that in too and her, and her perspective is often not so much on the um what's happening or what we're looking at but on like me looking at it <laughs> kind of like going I think she's got a nice skepticism. Like, what are you doing now? Why are you dragging me next? But she's always game to go. So it's like, yeah, here we go. Do you show her, do you, do you show her your drafts or what, what, at what point does she see your work? I usually wait um, until I've got something sort of finished. I don't show her like sort of sections as I go. Um, But then I show her a draft and then, and then, Sometimes it's like after my agent has seen it. Yeah. And I've got, and I've done another pass. Uh, Cause then I want, you know, you want fresh eyes. You don't want to just have everyone look at the same draft. You want to have different people look at different drafts. And then, um, and she's just reading the finished book now. She hadn't, she hadn't read the finished thing after I'd done a bunch of revisions. So. Oh, very cool. Yeah. But does she like there's there's like the you're you know you're in the pocket and you come out of your office and you're kind of like doing the little dance and she goes, Oh, you've had a good day writing. Is, is, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. She'll she sees that. Yeah. 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 And then she sees the dark days when you're sitting there looking at a thing of tequila and chain smoking cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't smoke, but and I would just have a shot. Uh, so <laughs> that's I'm just, really that's I'm what I very picture directed. <laughs> yeah, so I wouldn't just look at the tequila. I'd be like, ah, I'm gonna have a drink. Yeah, <laughs> almost like, get a lime, have a drink. Yeah, it's all about the lime. Mark, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, man. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I, I like a good ramble. Mark Caskell Smith on Drinks with Tony. Check out his new book, Rude Talk in Athens. Next week on the show, we have Ruben Leader, and we'll be chatting with him about his new book, You Might Feel a Little Prick. As a native San Franciscan, this needs to be said, go Giants. And apologies to my friends who root for Team Blue. Have a great weekend. I'll see you next week. You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz.